Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 59, the first six verses and then verses 14 to 21. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save you, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear you. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one calls for justice, no one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch serpents' eggs, they weave a spider's web. He who eats the eggs dies, and from the one that is crushed a viper is hatched. The spider's webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are like works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in a zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. And so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. We're in the second week of Advent, and as we discussed last week, the, the, the historical practice of Advent in the church as we anticipate Christmas and the glorious celebration and the wonder of his light, we sit with soberness as we consider the darkness. This is a dark text. It reads a little bit like the source material for Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. There's some dark poetic imagery in there. And so we intentionally look at this Precisely because in the same way that a darkened theater with the curtain lowered builds anticipation until the lights come up and the curtain is raised, this is what God in his redemptive goodness has done all throughout the Old, uh, the Old Testament, the, from the First Testament to the Second, where he comes in Christ that first Christmas morning and the light shines and pierces the darkness, uh, in, in the words of the Apostle John. But we sit and we consider uh, the darkness Precisely because it actually is the pathway to hope. This prophecy that we just read, it comes about 700 years before uh, the birth of Christ. And it is a very dark and hopeless time. But I want you to notice that it, it starts out incredibly dark, but then the passage ends with this undeserved, glorious promise. It's like a lighthouse in a hurricane. 
the flow of this prophecy. So let's consider it this morning, because right in the middle of this self-induced free fall into oppression and sin, God promises that he's going to pierce the darkness, he's going to bring redemption. And it is in the acknowledgement of pain and in the acknowledgement of the darkness of the present that opens our eyes to see the foreshadowing of of inevitable redemption in the future. And that is what gives us the grace and the strength and the resilience for the moment. I'm going to borrow from uh, author and uh, Anglican priest uh, Tish Warren. She wrote, a, she wrote an opinion article in uh, the New York Times last year. And I just want to read an excerpt from it. Where she says, to practice Advent, it's to lean into this cosmic ache. It's like we talked last week about whether you're here this morning as a, as a person of faith or you're searching and seeking, maybe you're agnostic today, um, we both can agree the world is not okay. So there is a cosmic ache, whether you're a person of faith or non-faith, we just know things are not right, and the brokenness persists. So Tish writes this, she says, it's to lean into this cosmic ache, it's this wordless desire for things to be made right. We dwell in this world that's still racked with conflict and violence and suffering and darkness, And in one way or another, we contribute to it. Life is not a Disney cruise. The tyranny of relentless mandatory celebration at Christmas time, it can leave us exhausted. And ironically, feeling emptier. Many people suffer from the holiday blues. And I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the increased demand for cheer. Incessant cheer. The collective lie. That throughout enough work and positivity, we can perfect our lives and our world. And I don't want to be a Grinch tisk-tisking anybody for decorating the tree early or firing up Jingle Bell Rock before the 25th. I'm all for happiness and joy and eggnog and corny sweaters and parties. But to rush into Christmas without first taking the time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in the world and in our own lives, it seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. This prophecy this morning from Isaiah 59, it gets us to just sit in a soberness so that we don't sit in an overstuffed practice of denial. So I've divided this text up this morning for our reflection into two portions. I want us to notice that God makes a diagnosis and then he makes a promise of deliverance. The diagnosis and the deliverance. The, the diagnosis is that we're hopeless without him. And again, for those of you exploring Christian faith today, that might seem uh, difficult to believe is true and wrap our minds around. How could life possibly be hopeless without God? Isn't it possible to have plenty of hope and not believe in God? So we'll explore that this morning. He diagnoses us as hopeless without him. And then secondly, the deliverance. He delivers us by his grace from this hopelessness so that we can find a lasting hope. Keyword lasting in him. So let's look at it this morning. Um, we'll begin with the diagnosis that we're hopeless without him. In verse 1, it says that, you know, his hand isn't shortened, that it can't save. And he's actually responding to an accusation. If you, if you were to reread the first verse, you'll see that there's accusations being made against God. And God's people are found in a familiar historical pattern. They've really assimilated to the culture. They've essentially doubted that God is wise, doubted his ways, gone about their own ways, doubted that he's good. 
And historically speaking, numerous times, cyclically, the children of Israel would doubt that God is wise, doubt that he is good, turn from his ways, doubt, that his, doubt his presence, doubt that he's real, turn from him. The sad and familiar pattern. And here they are again when Isaiah is making this prophecy. And so God's answering some accusations in verse 1. It's not that my hand isn't short that I can't save you. It's not that I can't rescue you from this dilemma, from the brokenness and the violence and the oppression and the senselessness of suffering. It's not that I can't. What God is ultimately saying, and this is offensive, God is saying, it's not me, it's you. He's saying, I didn't do this. You did this. This is the classic human trope, actually, of shaking our fists at the sky and putting God on trial. For the way that the world is. Like he's a vindictive ogre that either doesn't care about the way that it is or he's bad because he's not like a puppet master just puppeteering and manipulating all human decision all the time so the world is a good place. God is not doing a good job if he is control. And we look out the window and say things are terrible. There couldn't be a God. He couldn't possibly be good because look at the state of the world today. And God is saying something provocative. He's saying, I didn't do this. You did this. You know, we don't run to people that we don't trust. And the children of Israel have turned from God because they don't trust Him. And they've embraced cultural narratives, cultural values, uh, cultural gods, so to speak. And they've oriented their lives thoroughly away from God. And so it's a classic human trope to reject God and then wreak havoc in our lives or in the world by playing God. And then look at all the mess around us and then deny God. Um... This situation is hopeless because they've, they've tethered their lives to small gods. And the small gods are hopeless. And their idolatry is leading them into a future slavery. Uh, so again, just for the benefit of those of you new to Christian faith or new to the scriptures, this is 700 BC. And if you just look at world history, you'll know that in, in around 597 BC, Babylon comes in, flattens Jerusalem, destroys the walls, destroys the temple. It's the end of... It's the end of the Davidic kingdom. This is 200 years you know, before that happens. But this is the trajectory that they're on. And so everything is on a trajectory of being totally undone. Uh, so when the, when, the, when the walls get broken down, that undoes all the work of Nehemiah. When uh, the temple gets destroyed, that undoes the work of Solomon. When there's no kingdom anymore, that destroys the work of King David. When the land is taken back, that undoes all the work of Joshua. When God's laws are nowhere to be found, that undoes the work of Moses. When the people are slaves in Babylon, that undoes the freedom that came through Abraham. So basically, they're 200 years away from an absolute ground zero. They're 200 years away from like God didn't do anything in, in Israel's history. The reason why this is significant is because as people of faith, as Christians all around the world, this is our history. Right? We're not a part of national Israel, but we are true Israel, I would say, uh, with what scriptures would say, which means the, the, believers, the, uh, the believers of the nation of Israel and every other nation who trust in the God who saves. And what God has intended right from the beginning, right from the jump, is that Israel would be a blessing to the nations. That was the whole point of national Israel. The whole point of God choosing Abraham and choosing these people and calling them his chosen people is not because he was like, I like you guys way better than the Italians. Those guys are just shouting and yelling all the time. You know, I strategically picked that culture because it just felt like it was safe. Uh, 
So th- th- that's not what chosen means. It means I have chosen you. By the way, they weren't like a superpower in the ancient world. They were slaves subject to death. And God chooses those who cannot save themselves as a picture of a scandalous grace so that they would be priests to the ancient world, to the nation. And when he saves them in the Exodus, and I don't need to re-preach all of this, but when he takes them through the Exodus and all of those ten plagues are ten sniper rifles to Egyptian gods. It's ancient world evangelism as God is declaring that he is the one true God. And so God's intention from the beginning was that the people of God would be a blessing to the other nations. But by this point in history, they'd become so insular, and we had read about it, that there's no justice, there's no righteousness, nobody's seeking truth. This is not an indictment against the Canaanites. This is, this is against the people of God. This is who this is directed before, toward. It's God saying, you've departed from me and my ways. There's no truth is stumbling in the public square, which was... Their square. So God is saying to them at this point, this is a hopeless situation. And then the poetic imagery starts to show up in verse 6. So you try and clothe yourself with your works. Well, they're like cobwebs. Dress yourself in cobwebs. Let me know how well that covers you. Yeah, I mean, that's a massive Easter egg to being saved by grace and faith alone, apart from our works. Then, therefore, produce works. What would those works look like? The previous verses of righteousness and justice and seeking truth in the public square and being people of confidence and humility and carrying ourselves with love and grace and tenderness towards the city. Not cowering and keeping our mouths shut and saying, well, I don't want to get involved in controversial conversations. But no, going into those very things with the wisdom and the grace of God, but being those who would bring you know, the love and the wisdom of God Uh, to the city. This is what was intended. This is what was not happening. But over time, the people had put their hope in the wrong things. And so whatever the culture made ultimate, they have made ultimate. Then by default, in this vacuum of formation for their children, their children make it ultimate. Right? This is the challenge of uh, this is the challenge of, of the people of God throughout history is how do we lovingly and wisely and very intentionally create a formation in our children. As we celebrate the baptism this morning, you notice that as I turn to you as members, I am asking you and imploring that you would be a surrounding supporting voice in the lives of all the children here. Half of you here this morning are university students and you're not married and you don't have children, but you don't just dismiss the conversation around the importance of the formation of children because you can be these glorious voices of young men and young women speaking into the lives of children as you're serving here in this church while you're in the city, right? Or you move on to another city after you graduate and essentially we're ascending church and many of you are going to go to other cities, but you're going to put roots down at some point and you can give of yourselves to the formation of children. This was Israel's problem is they fell in love with the ways of the culture and the ch- it was like free-range parenting. The children are like chickens. The, the kids just kind of go around and do their thing and the parents are like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, embrace the values of Babylon, I suppose. At this point, it wasn't Babylon yet, but it's getting bad. And so there was sort of this massive vacuum, this massive void. And so the people had turned from God and generation after generation, they had just been turning away from God. So what God does is he uses this hard time. He uses this dark time as an uncomfortable tool 
to draw them back to the rest that's found in his grace. God always uses hard times and dark times, terrible times, things that are nothing like his nature, to pry the hands of his children open so that we would let go of our insufficient gods that we're clinging to. You know, before this, about 10 chapters before our text for this morning, God speaks about their idolatry, and he says in Isaiah 46, he says, they lift the idol upon the shoulder, they carry it, they set it in its place, it stays there, it doesn't move from its place, though they cry to it, it can't answer them, it can't deliver them from their distress. And in the, the idolatry of modernity, whatever that may look like, the particular gods, quote-unquote, that we worship in Kitchener-Waterloo, that we would say, this thing, this is what gives me meaning, this is why my life is okay, this is the thing that t- gives me a sense of identity of who I am. When I lay my head at the pillow, on, the, on the pillow at night and I say my life will be okay because of this, that's, that's the idol that's unable to deliver us from our, from our distress, from our anxieties and our sorrows and our depression. So it doesn't matter how many shiny toys we have, we just keep on saying, you know, why is it that we are the most anxious and depressed and medicated culture in world history? Because the gods are too small. And I know I'm using religious language for the, those of you who are exploring faith today. And, it, uh, and I'm using the word worship, but it's the orientation of your life. You know, the God, the small g God. The sense of meaning. There, there is a futility and a hopelessness to putting our hope in things that are smaller than God. We are hardwired for hope. And... We're dependent creatures. You are a dependent creature. You're not self-made. You're dependent. You garner your sense of meaning and identity from somewhere, from some narrative. And God has a cosmic, grand, divine, eternal narrative that when we worship him and are swept up into that, it gives a quiet to the soul that is unlike anything that, frankly, my word will fail to try and describe. But apart from that divine narrative, there's the small cultural narrative. And whatever the culture says is a value or importance or a meaning of identity, that this is to say, yes, then I'll orient my life now around this. And it's too small. You're drinking sand in the desert. This is what poetically they're doing here. The, all the imagery of the cobs webs, the cobwebs and the, and the, and, and the skeletons in tombs. What an image of the soul that is turned away from God to the smaller thing. If you Google soul, human soul, all these images will show up and they're all tranquil and they're all like a little drop of water with like these ripples coming out or they're like very ethereal or they're very spiritual looking. When we think of the human soul and everything's very just like, just very zen, that's not the way the Bible describes the soul apart from God. It's a raging storm. Well, let's not mix metaphors. Let's just stick with these ones. Skeletons. Dressed in cobwebs. That's the soul. The walking dead. That's us. So this is God's diagnosis. It's staggering. The diagnosis is that we're hopeless without him. But he uses these hard times. He's not vindictive. He's not an ogre. He's a loving father. And so therefore, he's, he's provoking us to consider... If what our ultimate hope is in, what is your life all about? He's provoking us to consider if it's big enough, powerful enough, strong enough to address the darkest, most devastating dilemma that life could throw at us. 
Because if it can't handle the darkest, most devastating dilemma that life can throw at us, we are going to crush that thing, or we are going to crush that person with our God-sized expectations. And they are going to crush us and disappoint us with their inevitably insufficient ability to soothe the hopeless cavity in the soul. And we will be the walking dead. And we will destroy, we will crush and suffocate friendships or marriages or the career. We will suck the life out of careers and co-workers or our own children because we will need for them to be our God. And they're insufficient. They can't do it. So when we go to God's word, we don't simply read it. It reads us. We don't just simply break it down like a scientific text to go like, my goal is to understand this. God's word is alive and powerful and it reads us. So I think there's some good diagnostic questions for us to consider here. Like, wow, maybe I, am, I love Jesus and I would never deny him, but how do I dethrone him? How am I dethroning him? When I feel the sorrow, when I feel the anxiety, when I feel the sadness, where do I run? Am I clothing myself with cobwebs? Remember when I was graduating, our, the, the president of the seminary, he said to us, he said, you know, today you're going to receive your master's degree in biblical theology. And I hope that nobody in this room thinks that means you've mastered God's word. I hope you all are being mastered by God's word. So for you and I to just sit in what God is provoking, this is the pathway to hope. Because it leads then to the, di- to, to the deliverance. Let's move on from the, the diagnosis to the deliverance. What's going to lift my spirits and what is my king? The deliverance by his grace. We're delivered from hopelessness to find this lasting hope. Hope in God will renew us. Hope in anything else is going to exhaust us. And at Christmas time, you can't go five feet without bumping into something that's got the word hope on it. So it can seem a little bit cliche. But my, there's nothing cliche about hope. Because the cultural narrative around hope requires the bracketing out of suffering. But as I said last week, Christian hope, Christian faith, having our hearts and lives captivated by God's goodness and his greatness, that is a hope that can stare into the horror of the moment and say Christ is king. It is a lasting hope. And this... The significance of this is that we don't need to bracket out the sorrow and the sadness and the darkness to have the hope. I was at the, I was at the gym this week on the treadmill, and they have TVs and tre- tre- treadmills because the TVs are there to remind you that the gym is the worst. And so there's these TVs, and one of the TVs has a feel-good holiday special on it, and the TV right beside it has the news. And I was like, this will preach. I mean, I'm like, I was like looking around like, I'm not the only one noticing this, right? The only way to slip into the inebriated state of spiking the eggnog to be happy for the month is to not look at the screen on the right. Pay no attention to the stream of sadness being put into your heart like an IV of sorrow. Don't look at that. Just watch the holiday special. Christian hope, the, the hope that God 
delivers us with is not trivial. God makes this promise, it's in verse 16, of this deliverance. And I want you to notice that the people have done nothing to deserve this. They have not warranted it. They haven't started to get their act together. And you've heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. God has a track record of helping those who can't help themselves. That's kind of the whole meta-narrative of redemption. God looks to and fro. He says, there's nobody. Nobody to intercede. So in a cosmic contradiction of what humanity deserves, God says, I will come. I will redeem. And then the narrative of the hope, the undeserved, scandalous gift of grace, comes upon us. Starts spilling out in verse 16. It's amazing. God doesn't meet us halfway. There's nothing amazing about that. The reason grace is amazing is God came all the way. Undeserved. The life that we live is in response to this. It's mind-blowing. The wonder of the first Christmas is that there was a first Christmas. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just find human beings a little difficult to get along with. And... Frankly, when I look out at the wreckage of the world, I got a lot of ideas. And my ideas are not even close to coming near to the mercy and the grace and the patience that God has had throughout human history to save those who hate him, turn from him, and don't want anything to do with him or trying to kill him. When you look out the window and you see the world is on fire, I would challenge you to not look at the sky and say, well, then God must not be good. It is a testament to his patience because he has been saving people that do not deserve to be saved from the jump. And frankly, friend, you and I would not do that. If you and I looked out and said, there is no one, there is no justice, truth is stumbling in the square, this is an absolute disaster... I'm going to lay my life down. That probably would not be your next sentence. But look at the grace, the undeserved grace of God. You know, there's a, uh, there's a, a Netflix special. Well, there's, there's 10,000 actually, but um, the one I'm going to refer to, it's called Claws. It's an animated Christmas story called Claws. Very funny, very clever, good times. And it's about the origins of the naughty and nice list. And it's about this, this mail carrier who ends up north. And it's the origins of how the naughty and nice list came to be. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of Christians are, they love Christian karma, the idea of it, the basic idea of, like, there's a naughty list, a nice list, God is a cosmic Santa, and if you, uh, you know, sort of get it right, he's good with you. That's not the narrative of Scripture. That's not the narrative of this prophecy. This is not a, if you look at the, if you, if you use the naughty and nice list karmic view of faith, and you look at the, all the prophecies, you're like, wow, this is not really, it kind of seems like God's coming to everybody who's on the naughty list. In fact, Halloween is quite a bit more Christian than Christmas, culturally speaking. Because the cultural narrative around Christmas is there's a naughty and nice list. Get on the nice list, you get the stuff. Halloween is like you show up like a devil and you get candy. What? That is the gospel. You can, uh, my email is paul at kwredeemer.com for those of you that want to fight this week. Okay, so listen. Uh, 
The problem of sin is that it's not the naughty list. It's not just a list of things you've got to stay away from. It is a condition humanity is born into. And we're all born into it, needing a savior. The other thing about sin is that sin is not a conversation about how, how intensely it shows up in a disgusting way in somebody's life. It is not about intensity. It's about how extensively it has tainted all human life. And I know, again, for those of you exploring faith this morning, I know that the narrative of the Enlightenment has been for quite a long time that if we only could educate ourselves, you know, humanity could sort of move closer to like a political utopia. But I think if you're honest, that's a, that argument is getting pretty tired. Because as all of these glorious advances happen, in technology and education and I mean there's a lot of glorious advancements in humanity but at the core my friend you have to confess the underlying problem is still there and it's still the same and this is because we're not just sentient meat we are created in the image of God we are image bearers we are created divine but fallen and God has come to restore and redeem the fallen this is of course the glorious message of Jesus Christ this is the core of Christianity the message of Christmas of Advent that Christ has come. And, and in verse 17, we get this poetic imagery of God dressing for war. He's putting on a helmet of salvation. He's putting on a breastplate of righteousness. He's wrapping in zeal. It's the image of a king preparing for war to liberate his people. And every, every ancient reader would have read that like, oh man, God is going to come and he's just going to obliterate these nations that have oppressed us. But that is not what God did. Our king would go to war in a way that no, the world could have never known or ever understood or could possibly imagined because our God came to wage war in a way that nobody would ever expect. Every kingdom throughout world history has been expanded by the shedding of enemy blood. But Christ the king came to establish his kingdom and set the souls of his people free by shedding his own blood. Verse 20, and a redeemer will come. And he did. And this is the gospel. And the whole purpose of the cross, the, the perfect life of Christ, the atoning death at the cross, his substitutionary atonement for our sin, the whole purpose of this, the whole purpose of the divine resurrection, the bodily resurrection, is because God's goal in the gospel is the renewal of all things. But in the end, heaven is not a ethereal place. It's like a consolation prize for muddling through the material. But in the end, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the renewal of the material. It is the new heavens and the new earth, the, poet, the poetry of Revelation. It is the restoration of the world that we wish we had that evades us. It is the civic society of love and of justice and of kindness and generosity without the paradox of selfishness and, and evil. It is, in the end, the restoration of all things. It is, for those of you exploring Christian faith, it is the answer to the deepest longing of your soul. Not a ethereal escape. This is the significance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the celebration of Advent. We reflect back on Christ's first coming and we anticipate his second. The first coming was very humble. The second one, not so much. And he will restore all things and nobody is getting away with anything. So for those of us who bend our knee to the glory of Christ, we receive an undeserved grace and forgiveness that we do not deserve, just like those of the object of this text. And for those who reject God, there is a justice that is coming that will be swift and will be perfect. And no one who is adding to the horrors of what it is to be human is getting away with anything. And that is perfect justice. 
And if it were not for a God of perfect justice and perfect mercy, we would be left to have to exact our own justice and our own judgment, and we would, co- we would contribute to the ongoing and endless cycle of violence as we sought retribution for being wronged. But we are delivered from this because we have a God who will restore all things, and a Redeemer will come. My friends, may we turn to him. May we teach our children to turn to him. May this gospel, the acknowledgement of the pain and tears of the present, may we rest in the foreshadowing of the inevitable redemption that is in the future, and may this grace forge strength in us for the moment, so that even in the most terrible horrors that this life can send our way, it only drives us deeper into our source of strength and hope. Christ our King. Let's pray.